Hey, hi, hello. Uh, welcome back. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this brief reprieve from the sound of my voice. Uh, I'm back behind the wheel, though, or like, or like the microphone, as the case may be. Uh, whatever. I'm feeling very relaxed and refreshed after my break, by which I, of course, mean um, it wasn't long enough. <laughs> Please don't make me go back to my day job. I'm begging you. <laughs> But I imagine that you're feeling kind of similar, so we can get through this together by tuning out with some pop cultural thoughts. Some pop cultural boners, if you will. Oh. Look, I know it's the title of the podcast, but the idea of like a, a brain boner is so gross. I'm sorry. Anyway, um, I did use the time off to do a little extra preparation for the podcast. I was kind of chugging away at my laptop trying to work out what would be an appropriate relaunch episode. I'm trying to do things that are a little more seasonal, a little more like aligned to the year, but it's hard to both plan content in advance and react to the world around you. Initially, the Grammys were going to have just happened, so I was going to talk about the Grammys and the weirdness of awards shows in general, and then the Recording Academy postponed their goddamn ceremony. The audacity! I'd already written like a thousand words. But life comes at you fast. 2021 started with a bang, by which I, of course, mean a small coup in Washington, D.C. Uh, well, look, I, I say coup. It feels like it's being a little generous, particularly to her country whose insistence on world domination means that their secret service has been responsible for most actual coups the world over, resulting in decades of political instability, violence and poverty in several large geographic regions. So I'm not going to say coup. Uh, I'm going to say bizarre white supremacist temper tantrum with guns. <laughs> uh, you're hearing this in February, so allow me to refresh your memory briefly. The U.S. Congress was about to affirm uh, President Joe Biden's Electoral College victory over Donald Trump when it was violently interrupted by a group of domestic terrorists, and we got to watch it unfold in real time because that's what the world is now. <laughs> It's been a little bit weird to watch, to be totally honest with you. Like, the capital was stormed. A country that cannot let you get through an airport without making you squat and cough in case you've got a bomb or an open water bottle stored in your asshole was very briefly derailed completely by a bunch of folks who think that Trump has been sent by God to save America. Uh, anyway, I guess in the spirit of responding to the world around me, I started thinking about American presidents on screen. Uh, Hollywood loves to drown New York in fire and flood, but it also really, really loves a high-stakes political hostage situation. <laughs> so with that in mind, I'm Alex, this is Pop Culture Boner, the podcast edition, and today I'm thinking about American presidential portrayals. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you, I really wanted that line to be, and today I'm thinking about kidnapping the president! But I didn't want to end up on some sort of, like, I don't know, FBI, ASIO watch list. So you get the less fun introduction instead. Uh, anyway, I started thinking about American presidents on screen because I was thinking about the kind of fanatical devotion of Trump supporters and his status as this, like, cult figure. I think there's a huge disconnect between that kind of devotion and politics in a lot of other places in the world. And I realise that the last four years has been a bit of a different ride than usual. But, like, I was trying to picture a scenario in which an Australian with a ScoMo will save us flag 
storms the gates of Australian Parliament with the sincere belief that our Prime Minister is secretly hunting a global cabal of pedophiles. And I just, I, cu- I couldn't get there, <laughs> like at all. <laughs> and that's not like a judgment call on our politics, really. I don't want to be that guy that looks at America burning itself to the ground and gets all kind of smug and superior. Australia is its own special kind of racist hellscape. And we've been extremely complacent in the rise of an ultra-conservative right wing. And there's definitely like a small but noisy contingent of QAnon people here. But I think there's enough of like a cultural difference that you'd have a pretty hard time convincing just people to drive to Canberra, let alone actually like storm Parliament House. I mean, obviously, no one is under any illusions about the amount of power that the Australian Prime Minister holds in a global setting, uh, except maybe ScoMo himself. Um, trade war with China, anybody? Uh, woo! <laughs> Our politicians aren't really global figureheads, though. Um, I'm willing to bet that my very small contingent of international listeners probably couldn't name our PM off the top of their heads, and they're wondering what the fuck a ScoMo is. In contrast, after years of American cultural imperialism, people unironically refer to the US president as the leader of the free world, which is probably why Hollywood movies are so fixated on blowing the president up, or, like, trying to, anyway. Where Australian dramatizations of political offices usually focus on, like, someone boinking a staffer or, like, not being nice enough to the Queen, American depictions of the President and Cabinet run the full gambit. From hero President who saves the whole of planet Earth from aliens slash meteors slash tidal waves, take your pick, uh, to hero President who is beaten viciously by terrorists but still refuses to give up the nuclear codes, to, like, hero president who just wants to be a normal guy looking for love. Hollywood's got them all. So I thought today we could have a look at those fictional representations, not the biographical period pieces, uh, because we already know history's written by the winner, Uh, but I thought we could mull over what those fictional representations have in common, what they don't, and what impact years of being drip-fed American cinematic propaganda has on our perception of reality. Okay, so let's start off with a little bit of history because I think it's interesting and I think it goes some way to explaining why American cinema is just kind of like that. Much of this summation is pulled from a three-part series on CBC Radio called Myths on Screen, Hollywood at War, which is a great listen and, like, I highly recommend. Uh, The link to those episodes will be in the uh, description on the website. Basically, in the lead-up to America's entry into the Second World War, the American military enlisted Hollywood to help drum up some, like, good patriotic feeling. The U.S. Office of War Information created the Bureau of Motion Pictures, which was responsible for reviewing scripts and revising those that were seen to portray the U.S., and particularly the U.S. war effort, in an unfavorable light. Between 1942 and 1945, the Bureau reviewed over 1,600 scripts and had the final say in most of them. But this military relationship to Hollywood didn't end with the Second World War, and when the U.S. became involved in later conflicts like Vietnam, Hollywood continued to play a pivotal role in generating sufficient public support to at least warrant entry into the war, even if it couldn't sustain that public support afterwards. Then when Hollywood started depicting broken men in a post-Vietnam world, the Department of Defense kind of had to change tact Uh, They had to start making movies that glorified the military, but without explicitly being war movies where people had the actual opportunity to be, be, like, scarred emotionally. This is where you get films like Top Gun 
uh, which is about the military structure and uses actual naval bases and officers as extras, but is mostly about teamwork, friendship, and gay beach volleyball scenes between Val Kilmer and Tom Cruise, which, as far as I'm concerned, is the main point of the movie. Anyway, it was so successful as a piece of propaganda that Navy recruiters set up shop outside of cinemas where it was showing, and enlistment reportedly increased, like, up to 500%. This success meant that the face of propaganda evolved from like grand military heroism to a more abstracted version of military might through either things like Top Gun or through more fantastical kind of sci-fi type hits like Independence Day. Tanner Millies, who's an associate professor of communications and digital media at Ontario Tech University, speaking to CBC Radio says, No country in the world churns out as many images of itself as the military hero like the United States does. That is a unique cultural phenomenon. As someone who's a big fan of, like, stupid action movies, I often find myself having to take even the better ones with a grain of salt. Or, like, a a pinch of salt. Sometimes the whole shaker, if we're being totally honest with you. It isn't subtle pro-American sentiment. Like, even when The Rock is playing a search-and-rescue helicopter pilot, he's got a combat veteran backstory. Yes, it's episode one and we're back on The Rock as an example, but I know who I am as a person, okay? Anyway, it's all about as subtle as a brick to the face. So what does this fixation on military heroism have to do with American presidents? I mean, the most obvious answer is that the president is the commander-in-chief of the United States Army, Navy, and Air Force, which makes him kind of a symbolic figure anyway meaning that any subtle military propaganda that's produced is ultimately feeding into the glorification of the office of the president, regardless of whether he appears in the film or not. But when an American president appears on screen, particularly in an action film kind of setting, you're often seeing filmmakers walk a really fine line between showing the president as a heroic, noble, and capable public official and still allowing him to be saved by the kinds of armed forces the propaganda machine is trying to, like, glorify and recruit. I watched a few different films to get a sense of what a fictional president looks like through the Hollywood lens. On the action movie front, I watched Olympus Has Fallen and White House Down, both from 2013, which are basically the same movie in like a kind of friends with benefits, no strings attached situation, but with additional exploding White Houses. I also watched Independence Day, Air Force One and Deep Impact, which are from 1996, 97 and 98 respectively. On the non-action front, I watched The American President, which is a 1995 Sorkin-penned romance about an environmental lobbyist dating the president. I chose these because they're all fairly well-known and they give us a pretty nice snapshot of what the US wanted from a president in the 1990s and then again for where we were at in the Obama years. These films take a couple of different approaches to presidential prestige, but they all have a few things in common. For one thing, each of these presidents is a likeable guy, Now, obviously, he has to be if he's going to be worth saving or romancing. He's got to be good, you know. But the thing I think is kind of funny is that all of these films define likable in the same way. Every single film I watched has a long single take that shows the president sort of going through his morning routine, which usually includes being handed pieces of paper, thanking everyone from presidential aides to gardeners by name, Uh, and moving around schedules to make sure that there's adequate family time. The type of president shifts, so like Jamie Foxx in White House Down, for example, is like a radical anti-war, anti-poverty president, whereas Aaron Eckhart in Olympus Has Fallen seems to be running on a pretty conservative (laughs) pro-freedom platform, whatever that means. 
but both of them love their wives and children and remember their staff members' names and hobbies, and they shake hands with a janitor on the way into work as they sip their morning coffee. Harrison Ford in Air Force One has an entire bit where all of the members of the Secret Service and the stewards on the plane keep accidentally spoiling the outcome of the NFL game for him because they're excited that his team won and they get to share that with him. I know that this is like a pretty common trope for a lot of films that are trying to set up powerful men as likable, but it feels really pointed when it's for about the President of the United States. I think specifically because it seems to be based around this idea that the reverence that all of those aides and gardeners and janitors and pilots and captains hold for the office is reciprocated by the president towards this concept of we the people that's contained in those diverse common person jobs. One of the ways these films reinforce this idea is by having a character make an I voted for the other guy joke while putting their body on the line to protect the president. So as Channing Tatum slots his body in between a hail of white supremacist bullets to protect Jamie Foxx, he's doing so not because he likes the presidential politics, but out of duty to and respect for what the president represents. And in return, he gets a president who's willing to do the right thing, whatever that might be. Interestingly, not a lot of these films confirm which party the president belongs to, with the exception of the American president, which explicitly lays out a Democratic president and shows some underhanded Republican dealings. But in fairness, the offcuts of that script were later turned into the ultimate political drama, The West Wing, and as such, it's taking itself a lot more seriously than a string of films where the White House gets blown up a hundred different ways. I think particularly as we move into the 2010s, keeping the party out of it is a conscious decision so as not to alienate half the voting population of the film. Because as much as the likable guy trope is designed to instill like a sense of reverence for the commander in chief, realistically, politics in the US is a partisan game. And that's only been getting worse as we move through the decades. Having a bunch of different presidents make tough but fair calls without any real political alignment lets the military propaganda machine keep ticking over without too much commitment. One thing I noticed about a couple of these presidents, particularly in the 90s, is that they're explicitly stated as having combat experience in one of America's many and varied war efforts. In Air Force One, Harrison Ford is a Vietnam vet with a Medal of Honor. Bill Pullman's president in Independence Day was an F-16 fighter pilot in the Gulf War. Um, I was curious about what percentage of American presidents were actually veterans. Um, It's 26 out of 45, in case you were wondering, or 26 out of 46. I don't know about Biden's, look, time, okay? Time is difficult. I write these scripts in advance. Ignore me. (laughs) It's 26 out of 45, including service in state militias, and many of them didn't actually see combat particularly in the later years. The last one who actually saw combat was George H.W. Bush in World War II. Uh, No president saw combat in either the Vietnam or the Gulf War. (laughs) The fixation on having a war hero president seems to be part narrative device, part attempt to set the president up as ready to serve his country. In Independence Day, for example, at least some of the central tension of the film is the discomfort of the president settling into his role of not being on the front lines. And when he's presented with an opportunity to throw himself into the line of fire, he does so gladly. Harrison Ford's president is the same in Air Force One, and in doing so, he ultimately sacrifices a bunch of White House staffers in order to punch communist Gary Oldman in the throat, none of which is ever portrayed as anything other than heroic. 
Despite not being an accurate depiction of the office, the desire for a veteran president hones in on some of the tension that I mentioned earlier. Films without a veteran president have to spend more time setting up the fact that these are both tough guys but worth saving when their toughness fails. They're boxers or they're able to shoot guns. Morgan Freeman in Deep Impact is just sort of blessed with authoritative voice and therefore is kind of allowed to do whatever he wants. But given that he's facing a natural disaster rather than an assassination attempt, he doesn't have to throw any punches, really. There's a desire for presidential heroics and masculinity that's almost at odds with the need to be saved by the average Joes who are also craving their moment of American exceptionalism. What does all of that mean when the Capitol's being stormed in real life, then? (laughs) Obviously, I can only talk about this from an Australian perspective, but as I watched a bunch of guys walking around in MAGA hats stealing mail from Nancy Pelosi's office, I had a lot of difficulty reconciling what I was seeing on screen, and I couldn't really work out why. I mean, civil unrest happens all the time all over the world for lots of different reasons, sometimes literally because the US can't keep its hands to itself. But I think after watching all of these films back to back, I've kind of nailed the feeling down. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of Paris syndrome. Um, It's specific to Japanese travellers who visit Paris. The idea is that the expectations set by the media portraying Paris as this kind of hub of romance and culture isn't actually met by the city itself. And it causes this break in reality for tourists who are then sent into a deep depression. This feels a little bit the same, not in the sense that I'm depressed. I I mean, I am depressed. It's totally clinical, though. It's unrelated to the shirtless QAnon guy. Uh, Anyway, More in the sense that the rest of the world sees America sort of filtered through a pop cultural lens. And for the most part, America kind of is those things. Like it has weird little cowboy towns with actual cowboys and colleges that are known for partying and fraternities rather than just like, I don't know, going to uni. I know at least one person who swears blind that they've met the devil in Georgia just like in the song. In a lot of ways, going to America is kind of the opposite of Paris Syndrome, where you're entering this weird kind of uncanny valley of everything being just too exact. These people exist, and they unironically think that America is the greatest nation on earth. So with that in mind, when you're used to seeing Hollywood movies literally backed by the American military, where there's this like triumphant defense of the White House that's also symbolic of America's superiority and freedom. And what you actually get is people walking through the front door with almost no resistance. It's such an odd disconnect. It's not that I'm hoping these people would get blitzed by some Channing Tatum action guy with a machine gun. Not at all. I just wonder if it's weird for me, a 30-year-old Australian who just likes movies a bit too much, What's it like for people who have been slowly drip-fed that propaganda and have just uncritically absorbed it their whole lives? Well, that was episode one. Uh, Yay, welcome back. I know I mentioned that White House Down and Olympus Has Fallen are essentially the same film. For what it's worth, if you're going to go and pick one, it should be White House Down. Uh, The terrorists in Olympus Has Fallen have great hair, and frankly, they're kind of right as well, which is the opposite of what you want from people trying to nuke America. (laughs) 
If you've got any thoughts on the state of American politics, uh, please, please don't share them with me. <laughs> I'm so tired. I'm so tired. Uh, but if you've ever seen The Devil in Georgia, tell me about it next time you see me at the pub. Peace. <laughs>